In a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars, one oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE Podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. And this is episode 20. Joining me today is my amazing co-host, Paige Wilson. How you doing, Paige? Pretty good. How are you, Mark? Doing awesome. So nobody gets scared. Patrick's actually busy doing other stuff. Uh, we've asked Paige to come on board and help co-host the show. So Paige, how the heck did we meet? Well, I was following the original podcast. Um, Oil and Gas This Week. Right. And um, y'all had announced the rig tour. So I signed up for AP. IYP almost immediately because I've always wanted to tour a rig. So uh, showed up. There you were. Yep. Showed up. Showed up and was working, right? Right. You you brought receipts with you, pens, pencils, tape. You're running around taking care of everything. And I noticed you right away. I go, you know what? This girl's a little firecracker. So we became friends and you've helped out with the podcast for a while now. And we have something coming up new in 2017 for you, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. What do we have coming up? Well, I... After being a project manager for well over a year for the podcast group, um, I get my own podcast. Yeah, so Paige is coming out with oil and gas industry leaders, right? And this is going to be a, a show where Paige is going out and interviewing top people in the oil and gas industry. You hear their story, find out how they got to where they were, um, you know, their journey. So we're really looking forward to Paige uh, joining the Oil and Gas Global Network with her own podcast. Now, Paige, it's not just you and I sitting in a room by ourselves today, is it? No. <laughs> no. So we have a uh, we have Richard Hartley with us today. Hey, Richard. Hey, Mark Page. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here. And so, so Richard, it's um I actually noticed a post you did online on LinkedIn, and I go, you know what? I need to reach out to this guy because he has a great story to tell for our HS and E audience. So, before we get into that, kind of where's your what's your background? How'd you get started? Well, I uh, started with Halliburton about 19 years ago in South Louisiana in, in May of 97 on the back of a spud boat in inland water, South Louisiana, which uh, you don't want to start in May in South Louisiana. Yeah, let's back you up in case people don't know what a spud boat is. A spud boat is a, a slick line vessel. It, this one was a slick line vessel. And instead of, you've heard of a jack-up boat perhaps? Of course, yeah. Okay, so instead of it jacking up out of the water, it had two spuds that lowered down into the water and, and kind of anchored you and held you in place. And because you were in inland waters in May, there was a bit of a mosquito heat problem, wasn't there? Mosquito <laughs> problem, heat problem. Um, it, yeah, and then it reflects off the water. It's muggy, um, you name it. And, and it's just a bad time of year to get started in, in that type of business. So that's how you got started in all business. As, as an operator assistant. So I, I did everything that I was asked to do, which means... Uh, cleaning the boat, painting the boat, rigging up the tools, um, everything that the operator doesn't want to do, he assigns to the operator assistant, yeah. and, and you get after it. Yeah, it's um, it's worse than being a roughneck. I mean, it actually really is. It, it pretty yeah. much is a roughneck for a service company, yeah. yeah. So that's how you got your start um, with Big Red uh, about 19 years ago, and where did you go from there inside of Halliburton? So, um, and, and I was out on that boat for a little bit less than a year, and um, I, I saw a posting that Halliburton had for an HSE coordinator at the time, 
and uh, I put my name in the hat for the position. And uh, as luck would have it, the, the hiring manager, the HSE manager for the Gulf of Mexico region, was looking for somebody with some field experience and, and had a degree. And, um, and I met that criteria. We, we got along well, and, and the rest is history there. So um, I, I did that in the Gulf of Mexico for uh, about four or five years. And then uh, transitioned up to uh, and, and worked my way through the ranks. I uh, I, I had no real HSC background. Um, I, the, the the hiring manager was a great mentor. He was a CSP, um, and, and he showed me how to study and learn HSC. And within three years, I, I was able to get an OHST uh, safety certification. So I did that and. Uh, and then I wanted to learn a little bit more about Halliburton's business uh, and, and wanted to get to the land side operation. So I uh, took a lateral transfer to Grand Junction, Colorado. Um, and, and by this point, I had advanced to the rank of uh, HSE technical professional and uh, covered Halliburton's uh, business in the Peonce Basin in Grand Junction and Vernal, Utah. So I, I kind of two days a week in, in Vernal, Utah, three days a week in Grand Junction, and back and forth. Yeah, so I want to back you up a little bit. So yeah. this was, what, the late 90s when you've got early, your start? Early 2000s. Yeah. 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 90, 98's when I started in HSC, and then uh, to about 2007. So there's been some, because I've been in the industry about that long as well, there's been some dramatic changes in, in HSE from the late 90s, early 2000s to now 2016. I mean, our industry is so much safer uh, than it was back then. I mean, a lot of that's culture. And I know you had you played a hand in having to um, help shape that culture within a Halliburton. What were some of the challenges back then? There were a lot of challenges back then. Um, people were just starting to understand the importance of safety and what it really meant to them. We, we did a lot of campaigns about making it personal um, so that they could understand the ramifications that having an injury or a significant incident would have on their lives and their families. So, um, you know, we, we did a lot of different things. They, we had an a performance improvement initiative um, where each district was required to, to make a plan on how they were going to improve in safety. Um, and then really, uh, I think one of the primary and most critical things was working with the local leadership to get them to understand that if, if it was important to them, they needed to really talk about it. Right. Um, you know, if, if you say, yeah, safety is important to me, but then every conversation you have is about revenue and operations and profitability. Um, it, employees have a tendency, they, they, they know what's going on. They can read between the lines. They can tell that you're giving safety lip service. So a lot of what I had to do was coach leaders, operational leaders on how to talk safety, how to incorporate messages of safety into conversations that you have with employees day to day. And that was a really big thing. So you're almost like a translator. Exactly. I think one of the, uh, the, the best skills that you can find in an HSC person is somebody with the ability to communicate. The technical knowledge, is, it's got to be there. Uh, you can't perform your job without the technical knowledge, but um, you, you have to find a person that not only has that technical knowledge, but can communicate with people. Because if you're talking to people and they shut you out because... Uh, they, they don't like you. I, I, I don't want to use any off-field terms here that <laughs> involve four-letter words, but um, if, if you can't communicate with people and they're not responsive to what you're saying, you, you're not going to get very far in terms of changing culture. So I think that's a, that's a big, important piece in, in uh, an HSE 
professionals repertoire that they need to have at their disposal. Yeah, and it's the hardest thing to change, right? Culture. And let me tell you, I've known Halliburton for a long time. Halliburton now lives and breathes safety. You can't have a meeting even in the office without starting with the safety moment, right? Absolutely. So, so y'all were successful, you know, but it had to take a while. Um, so when things started to change, when you, when you started getting buy-in from the actual leaders in the different business units there, did that accelerate? Like once the leaders saw the value in what you were doing, did the employees just fall in line or did it take longer than that? It, it, it takes longer than that. It, it's a process. And like any process, it doesn't happen with a flip of a switch. It, uh, it, it progresses over time and you see the, the fruits of that, you know, year after year after year. And, and I'd like to say that you can go in and change culture immediately, but it just doesn't happen that way. It takes time for employees to understand that you mean it, that, that this is the way we're going to operate uh, and, and to buy in, quite frankly. You're always going to have pockets of resistance. That, those are the folks that I like to go after first. Uh, are your later doctors, um, uh, the folks that, that when you give a safety meeting kind of scowl the most, that, that ask questions that you can tell or... Uh, trying to trip you up and, and trying to, to um, be a dissenter to, to what you're saying. You go after those people first and, and make them believe and buy in, and, and then the rest of them are easier to deal with. So when you're talking about safety, and we go back to Halliburton, because um, I, I know your safety culture well, it's, um, you also had to have buy-in from executive leadership, right, to make this happen? Absolutely, and, and that's the foundation. Uh, you know, if you're going to have a successful safety program, you, you've got to have buy-in from the top. Um, the, the foundation is that executive uh, commitment, um, and then, you know, you've got your policies that, that are also the foundation of it, and then you build your culture and the other things, elements of your program from there. Yeah. All right. So that's a lot of stuff that y'all you accomplished. And this was this is kind of like mid career, and you're actually in um, where were you? Um, I was in Homer City, Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I was the district manager up there for four years. Yeah. And so then from safety, you kind of decided to get on the operation side. Yeah. Well, I, I went straight from safety to sales, and that was a heck of a transition, <laughs> polar opposite kind of worlds. Um, but, uh, well, actually, having a decent safety program is a heck of a selling point for a sales guy in, in this industry. Yeah, in case people don't know, Halliburton's customers are the majority of the operators out there, right? Right. The, yeah. the Shells, the Exxons, the BPs, the, you know, consoles uh, of the world. Yeah, and so they don't want to bring um, a contractor or a service company in unless they have a stellar safety rate rating in a program because it affects them. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times you'll be eliminated from bidding on a contract if you don't have uh, a certain statistical, um, you're not at a certain statistical level. That, that's actually, it's a very good point. I've, I've known that before. I've never brought it up on the show before, but if, if are people in our audience that aren't in oil and gas, literally, if your safety metrics aren't at a certain level in this industry, people won't hire you, right? It's not about price. It's not about who can do the job cheaper. It's like, who has the best safety metrics? And it, it's a well, and nobody trial. wants to deal with the government. <laughs> yeah, nobody wants to deal with the repercussions of having well, a, right. an incident. Yeah. Right. There, there's a real cost to having safety incidents. Um, there, there's financial costs. There's there's personal costs for the employees involved in it. Um, and there's there's you know it, it's not a good thing all the way around. Um, one of the things that that attracted me to safety was the, the the human element of it, trying to help people help themselves. 
Yeah, it's um, one of the things, and I've said this on the show before, one of the things I love about our industry is in everybody's hearts, yes, it's a KPI, yes, it's a metric, but in everybody's hearts, we want every one of our people to go home safe every day. Absolutely. And it's just the culture of this industry, which I think is awesome. All right, so you moved over to sales, which was a different world, right. um, but your safety background helped you there with the it, operators. It helped there, and then from there I moved into operations um, and, and was the PSL manager for completion tools. Um, and, and then I got drawn back into health and safety. They needed a region manager in the U.S. Southern region. So I did that for a couple of years. And then the district manager role came open in, in Homer City, Pennsylvania. And so I took that. And, and that was an experience because uh, some of the things that I was trying to teach other managers as a safety professional, it was now on me to, to implement that in, in, in the operational uh, world. So, so you were on the other side of the fence. You went from one side of the fence to the other side of the one fence. One side to the other. And so. so... So let me ask you a question. So you had HSE support when you were on that side, right? I did. I did. Right. As a matter of fact, I hired the guy that, that became my HSE person. So what was it like having your, having from an operational, having an HSE guy there helping you making sure your people were safe? Um, well, it, it, it was a learning experience for me because I had to, uh, I, I knew what I provided to my managers and so th this was a, a younger guy, uh, a little less experienced than I had had. And so he didn't do all the things that I did. And so I, I would, hey, where's this? Where's that? And I need this. And I had to, I had to back off because I realized, I, was, I realized that I was overloading his boat a bit. And, yeah. and uh, said, okay, well, let me just let him do his thing. See how he does it. If I really, truly need something that I can't get for myself, then I'll go to him. But yeah, I for a while I, I probably micromanaged no one as much as I did the HSE guys, the operational guy. <laughs> yeah, that poor guy. <laughs> his his bad luck that you came from that side of the right. business. Yeah. So it's um and the whole reason I ask that question is a lot of people so a lot of our audience are in HSE and oil and gas, but we have a lot of people in our audience also on the operations side. And a lot of times they don't understand what their HSE guys go through. You actually, because you had both sides, you got to actually see what the, these guys and, and women have to go through. Oh yeah. It, it, I tell you, being an HSC professional in the oil and gas industry, um, especially a service company, you're on call 24-7. Um, I, I remember sitting at my house on a Saturday, and there was an undefeated Ohio State-Michigan game. They were both undefeated. And five minutes before kickoff, my phone rang. And it's like, okay, let's go. So grabbed my gear, got in the truck, and, and off I went to deal with it. And I got back about two after hours after the game had ended, and you know the the, the stories like that could go on and on and on. Um, when the phone rings, you pick up, you help people deal with problems, you help them solve problems, um, and, that, and that's what you do. That's what's expected. Yeah, and it's uh, we're actually talking about this over lunch. Um, you spent you talked about earlier. You spent some time in the the southern region for Halliburton, and you did work in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it's a totally different world doing work in the Gulf of Mexico than it is doing stuff on land. It, it totally is. Uh, mo most of the time you're working for super majors offshore, and, and they have very high standards, very strict. And that's a good thing for a safety professional. Yeah, let me stop you real quick. Yeah. So the super majors are the big combined are super majors, the, the Chevrons, the BPs, the Totals, um, the Shells, and the Exxons. Correct. And, and then you go to work on, on, uh, uh, on land, and it may be smaller organizations um, and not to say that they don't have standards that they, they, they do have standards they don't always necessarily have the manpower out there to help them execute on those standards or the resources or the resources yeah. right and and so um, 
one of the things that that's always hard is to remind your employees and your crews it doesn't matter who you're working for we still have Halliburton standards we still have our standards and we're not going to lower them for anyone um, so that, that that's always the challenge and it, it was one of the primary challenges as an HSC professional was to, to remind your employees that doesn't matter what level we're, we're um, being held to we hold ourselves to this level certain level yeah, so have, have you in your memory have you ever had a, an instance where you had a Halliburton crew out working somewhere and the crew saw something that wasn't safe and they stopped the job even though they're working for one of your clients absolutely um, and and that's one of the programs that's that's been fairly recent stop work authority uh, probably within the last five years we've always had somewhat of stop work authority but it's really been a formalized thing in the last handful of years um, and and people are, are starting to understand that uh, everyone's behind them if they you know and stop work authority doesn't just mean you shut down the entire location it may mean that you and you and John there just stop what you're doing regroup talk about what's happening make a new plan and, and go forward um, you know it, it's their own lives that are in their hands so uh, it's important that that they realize that if something's out of the ordinary or just not right, um, they, they have the right, the responsibility, and the authority with backing from management to, to stop what's going on. Yeah, it's, um, it's, I think it's really awesome. I've seen this a whole bunch, but that culture in our industry has changed. Years ago, if you stopped the job and you didn't have a darn good reason, you were gone. Now, yeah, what the heck are you doing? Yeah, now, where's my money? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no. Now, when somebody sees something that maybe they can't even put their finger on, right? Something doesn't feel right, and they want to stop and assess it. Everybody's behind them, including upper management, and I just think it's awesome. That, that's a wonderful thing, I, and I tell you what, as a safety professional, if you don't think that upper management is behind your effort, then you need to seek life elsewhere because that, that's not the group of people you want to work for. And, and I, I was pretty fortunate to have good management support. Uh, pretty much my entire career at Halliburton. So yeah, it's um I can't think of any company I, that I know uh, here in Europe that d the executive management doesn't buy one hundred percent into safety in, in our industry. Right. I mean, it's just what we do is dangerous and there's risk involved, and you can mitigate those risks. But once again, I just go back to the the part that you know it's this industry, even though it's huge and global, is still an industry of people doing business with people, and everybody wants their people to go home safe at night, and it just it's a beautiful thing. It is. So. Um, Experience in the Gulf of Mexico with the super majors, which had to be a little bit yeah. aggravating at times. It, it is. <laughs> I mean, you have to jump through hoops. I remember, um, I, I won't mention the, the company's name, but we were just off the heliport into the, uh, uh, the safety briefing area, and we had to do a JSA to walk on the platform. What are the hazards of walking <laughs> on the platform? Which was the first time I'd ever had to do it. And, and it seemed a little bit ridiculous, but okay, I get it, you know, that there are hazards and they don't know the experience level of the people that just got off the helicopter. So let's talk about them. Let's get them out there. Make sure you understand what they are. Don't put yourself in a bad situation and, and go from there. Yeah, so one of the interesting things, Richard, you don't know about this. We talked about it at lunch, but I think we kind of breezed over it, is I actually was able to put together a rig tour, an offshore rig tour for my API young professionals. And Paige just told the story. That's how we I'm met. I'm still on cloud nine, man. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> and, and you know how hard. And the rig was in dry dock. It wasn't actually offshore. It was just a top side. Um, but what was amazing, I haven't been offshore in 15 years. Actually, shout out to Halliburton. Maybe I shouldn't say this. <laughs> actually, I'm not going to say this. <laughs> but Halliburton helped me the very first time I went offshore. 
Um, but the thing that Rich I was so amazed at is the drilling floor now is so small. There's there's people aren't on the floor anymore with tongs and chains. It's all uh, automated, mechanized, um, and just that introduction of technology had to jump safety metrics light years ahead. And you lived through that. You Absolutely. you were there before the Iron Roughneck and after the Iron Roughneck. Yeah, the rigs the rigs have gotten phenomenal. Um, they're so efficient. Um, we, part of the rig count uh, issue is that they, they need less rigs yeah. to, to do the same amount of work as, as uh, years past. But, um, yeah, yeah. It, it's incredible. It, it, the safety systems that are in place on those rigs, as well as service company equipment, um, it, it's, it's come leaps and bounds. Yeah, it's um. When we back up, because uh, Richard mentioned something that's actually kind of important to know, the especially on land, rig count isn't a great indicator anymore because the rigs we have now are so fast and so much horsepower, and they can move themselves. They can just punch a hole in the ground and move and punch another hole in the ground and punch another hole in the ground. Whereas years ago, you would need three or four rigs to do that same type of productivity. So yeah, it's it's a good point to bring up, especially as this crude price is starting to creep back up. All right, so you're up in Pennsylvania. Up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and and. Um, so to, to execute HSE from an operational standpoint, uh, I realized some of the mistakes of others. I realized some of the things that other leaders had shown me that they did pretty well. And one of the things I always try to do is, is find some positive aspect about a leader that, that I've had or, or had the opportunity to see and, and take those and implement them in, in the way that I go about business. Um, and so one of the things that I noticed that uh, helped one of the managers prior was that every time he'd talk to you, if he was telling you to go make a hot shot up to the rig, he, he would tell you uh, in that conversation, hey, you know, it's pretty nasty out there. Make sure you check your tires, you have your chains, check your windshield fluid level um, and your wipers. And he would throw some element of safety in there every time he talked to you, whether it be on the phone or in person. And I think, you know, we talked about that culture change. That's one of the things that I think to help drive that culture change is that people would hear it all the time. And so... It became part of life. It's part of life. It's how we operate. Uh, it's an expectation. And, you know, if you don't do it, I'm going to hold you accountable. And I think that's the other end. Uh, you, you know, you talked about, I believe, either here at lunch, how, um, you know, back in the old days, if you did something wrong, you were just gone. Right. Right. Well, in, in this day and age, there's still that level of accountability, but I think the difference is that we tell you what the expectations are, we train you on how to meet those expectations, we give you a process to follow to, again, help you meet those expectations. But if you don't follow it, there's still that accountability. And, and there should be, because it's Absolutely. not just your life that you're putting in danger. It's, it's everybody else on that rig or everybody else in that crew. And if you make a choice not to follow a process, that you should be accountable for that. Absolutely. The decisions that individuals make has impact on uh, a multitude of people, anybody in the vicinity, really. Yeah, and it's um, you know, you're dealing with stuff under pressure, under high temperatures, under a lot of tension. And you, know, you may not want to take the time to put that glove on, right? But if you get your hand slipped and you pull it out and all of a sudden that load falls, well, I mean, I mean that could be catastrophic, right? Something that simple. Oh, absolutely. There are still, as safe as operations have gotten, there are still lots and lots of risks out there. And if you take them for granted and, and don't follow processes, that, that, that risk will up and bite you at some point. You know, I'm glad you actually brought that up. So um, I've watched, from an hs &E point of view, I've watched our industry um, really 
get really deep into process and procedure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with using in the last ten years using technology to help make sure that s- stuff is followed. But then at some point, I've seen where the processes actually get too big, too cumbersome. There has to be some balance there, right? There is, and it's a it's a tough way to uh, find balance in a, in a process because the last thing you want to do is write a process and throw it in a book and say, here, this is what you're supposed to do. I think one of the things that Halliburton did right uh, in developing what they call Halliburton management systems, their processes, is that when, when the thing got put together, they brought in uh, operations people, technical writers, uh, safety folks, um, and, and had field people sitting there, this is how we do work, and, and having that, that, that combination of people in the room to discuss how the process ought to look and, and ought to be, um, help make it personal, help, help the buy-in from operations, help have the buy-in from operations. Um, Without that, I think you just you run the risk of throwing something out there that people are gonna let sit on a shelf and accumulate dust. Or it may not be useful, right? Somebody back in sure. town or back in corporate comes up with a policy and they've never been out in the field and never picked up a wrench. That that's when you start running into issues from having too much rigor around the process that doesn't apply to the guys in the field. Yeah, and then you still have to train to it. You have to uh, you have to make sure that everybody understands their role in the process. Um, you, you have to take them out and, and look at them every now and again as technology changes, as, as uh, operations change, and, and um, you, you have to go revise them. I mean, it, those things aren't evergreen. They are evergreen, excuse me. They won't last forever. Uh, something invariably will change, and, and you have to go back and revisit the process. And, you know, we talked about technology changes in the field. Even that affects your existing processes. So it may be you need to rewrite you know, a process because there's now a new piece of equipment involved. Oh, absolutely. Halliburton's has gotten uh, uh, new frack equipment um, in the last handful of years, whether you're talking about pumps or you're talking about sand delivery mechanisms. Um, and so a lot of the processes that used to apply to, say, a mountain mover versus a sand castle may or may not apply, right? And so you, you got to go back and take a look at all that, that um, all those processes and see if they're still applicable and relevant and and uh, apply to what you have now. Yeah, and um, you mentioned a little while ago about training. I want to talk about that a little bit because one of the things that I really loved about Halliburton, and, and people, I, I've never worked for Halliburton. They were a client of mine for a long time, right? Sure. So, um, but your hs and guys seem to be out in the field a lot, which is actually where they should be versus being stuck back in office. Is that intentional in oh, Absolutely. Um, we, we started a few years back deploying field professionals versus, say, a facility HSE guy, a, a kind of a lead HSE guy, so to speak, um, that would go out with the sole purpose of uh, evaluating operations in terms of making sure that they have their JSAs, they're doing them, they're wearing their PPE, um, they're, they're wearing the right, you know, respirator when they're in the sand area or chemical area and, and doing audits on a regular basis just to make sure that you, you got to keep people honest. You have to, uh, you, you have to go out there and inspect what you expect, so right. to speak. So that's actually, if you think about that, I think that's really cool because so instead of waiting for something to happen, having an incident, and then your HSE guys show up on site and try to figure out what happened, if they're there all the time, they kind of get the pulse of, of what's going on with the crews, what works. Maybe a piece of PPE looked great in the office, but the guys in the field, they can't wear it. It's too uncomfortable. But the guy, your HSE guy can spot that, right, in the oh, field. Absolutely. 
And, and one thing, since you brought up PPE, I'll tell you is uh, when we used to have those old square looking uh, safety goggles, yeah. sa safety glasses, not goggles, compliance was horrible. You know, you go and spend another 50 cents more per glass or a dollar more and get something that they like wearing and your compliance will go through the roof. Um, it's amazing how much, you know, something they perceive as stylish uh, will go towards PPE compliance. Yeah, so think about that. So if you're buying PPE in the office and you don't have input from the guys in the field, you could make that mistake. And for a large company, that could be a lot of money. And then on top of the fact that you have people out of compliance, which means you have an uh, increase in number of incidents, versus somebody, one of your guys out in the field noticing that if the sunglasses, if the safety glasses look cool, they'll wear them. I mean, that's, you know, that's, you never would have captured that if you would have stayed in the office. Absolutely. Right. All right. So Richard, great story so far. This is the part in the show where we have a Red Wing uh, safety tip of the week. You have a tip for our audience? Sure. And, and what I would say is fail to plan and plan on failing. Um, anytime you're getting ready to do an operation, make sure you properly plan the activities that are going on. You identify the risks and the hazards. Um, we, we typically call them JSAs or job safety analysis. Uh, and they're critically important to uh, making sure that everybody's on the same page and understands what, what's going on and what their, their part in it is. Um, and, but they're not, they're not evergreen. They, they often change. And so when the situation changes, make sure that you use a program like a management of change uh, and, and regroup or yeah. stop work authority. Or yeah, great, great tip of the week. And speaking of Red Wing, um, it's time for us to talk about our Red Wing offshore bag. Uh, this is a very high sought after item. People actually offer me cash for it, which we refuse to do. If you want to win one of these offshore bags, it's really easy. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Put in your information. We draw one lucky winner a week. And this week's winner is Robert Starkey with Technosoft. He's an AutoCAD designer. So congratulations, Robert. You have won this awesome, incredible, really sought after Red Wing offshore bag. All right, so Richard, getting back to you, um, yeah. unfortunately, um, you were uh, involved with the transition team for the Baker Hughes merger, which actually didn't go through, and so uh, um, you end up um, uh, walking away from Halliburton. Absolutely. Um, it, it, was a, it was a bad situation. Um, I, I hold no ill will towards the company. They, they had to make a business decision. Uh, the Department of Justice blocked the acquisition. Um, they decided that it, at that point it wasn't worth pursuing anymore and as a result uh, had, to, had to let a few people go, or quite a few people actually. Um, we're in a market downturn um, and, and they didn't have places for all of us to go. Yeah, so if you're out there listening and you're looking for somebody, now, now Richard has an unbelievably awesome background. So he's from Louisiana. That's two points there, right Paige? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's from Louisiana. Um, very well educated, has this extensive HSE background with Halliburton, which is, I think, one of the most premier safety programs in the industry. He has operationals experience. So, you know, price of crude starting to tick back up. If you're out there looking for a pro that can really help your business, reach out to Richard. We'll make sure uh, Richard's uh, LinkedIn uh, uh, profile is in the show notes so people can just click. Um, Richard, I want to uh, really thank you for your time today. I know you're busy, you're out there hustling, um, but great story. Um, great to hear kind of insider baseball behind how Halliburton changed their safety culture. Um, we'd like to have you back on the show one day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So um, before we get out of here, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. So if you're a listener to the show, 
we may have some feed changes. So if you haven't seen a new show pop up in iTunes, go back, search iTunes, and there's a new Red Wing Oil and Gas hs feed. If you're also a listener to Oil and Gas this week, I think that's going to come for that as well. Then, Paige, we need reviews. We need reviews badly. Oh, so bad. Yeah. So please, 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 if you like the show, go to iTunes. It takes all of two minutes. Leave us a review. It helps us with our search engine rankings, but it also helps your peers find us because they see the, the, all the reviews. And then, Paige, everybody has to share the show, right? LinkedIn, yeah. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. What, yeah, whatever you've got. Yeah. Please do us a favor. Share it. And then um, we have a new website. So we have uh, com. Go to it. All the shows are there. We're doing blog posts there. Um, the show notes will be there. Uh, it's a place where you can enter questions. Um, and then finally, we're on the road a whole bunch, Paige. Um, yeah, we've got a lot planned for 2017 for sure. Yep. Um, I believe the end of January we'll be at the uh, Mid-Continent See, Digital Oil Field Conference. Very good. I thought you could flub that one. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So MD, uh, MCDOC will be there. Actually, the whole podcast crews will be there. We're going to be doing podcasts live from the event. If you're an operator and you want to get in front of, I'm sorry, if you're a service company and you want to get in front of operators in the field, in the frack fields, go to this conference. Uh, we'll stick a link to Dustin's, uh, we'll stick Dustin's email address in there. He's offering a special to our listeners. I think it's normally 1800 bucks for a, a 10 by 10 exhibit and he's doing it for 16. Great place for you to get, pick up some new clients. Then we're also going to be at the NAEP Summit in February. We're going to be at Process Safety in March. Uh, we're going to be at OTC in May with National Oil Well. Still don't know what that's going to look like, but we're going to be there. And that's a lot of stuff we talked yeah. about. <laughs> So, uh, Paige, ready to get out of here? Totally. Yeah. So, folks, don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston, to London, to Dubai, and beyond. When I first went to uh, being a land-based HSE professional, I'll never forget this. They put me in, do you know what color Halliburton's fleet of light-duty vehicles is? Just be red, right? Well, currently though, it's white. It's white. Okay. Everything's white. White pickups, white explorers, white Tahoes. You name it, it's white. Feel it's like been, I should be wearing gloves. Right. It's been <laughs> that, it's been that way for quite a few years. But probably the last red units or red and gray units that they had were in the mid nineties. Um, so I just dated myself. Right. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, but anyway, my point is this: that uh, when I went to uh, Colorado. I was stuck in a baby blue Ford Explorer as my company vehicle, and I'm not sure they didn't do that intentionally. It, it was part of the uh, the dresser acquisition when Bayroid came in. One of the Bayroid guys had a vehicle they didn't need, and we didn't have anything else, so they stuck the safety guy in a baby blue uh, Ford so they Explorer. they could see you coming. Well, that's exactly it. I used to hear supervisors talking to me all the time about all the PPE issues on location, yet every time I would go there, everything would be perfectly in order. Well, I started catching on to what they were doing, and about a half a mile or so, before they could see me, before I'd get to location, I'd turn on my radio just to hear the chatter and what was going on on location, 
And as soon as they would spot the baby blue Explorer, they would get on the radio and start telling everybody, hey, guys, get your stuff on. The safety guy's here. And so I caught on to what they were doing there. I started borrowing other people's cars when I went to location. Man, what a great story. (laughs) 